Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit, and we pray that your word, uh, that your story would come alive for us, that we would live the memory that you gave us to, to live, to carry us. We ask, Lord, that uh, the meal you gave us would be our sustaining source as well as our vision for public life. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're in a series called Prayer, Politics, and the Power of God. We're following the book of Daniel sequentially. And um, so I want to invite you to turn to Daniel 5 in your bulletins or in your Bibles. One of the ways that you know that you have a political in, that you have political influence, is if you get an invitation to the king's table. If, if, a, if the king or queen sets the table for you, you know that, that you've got influence and um, that you have a say. I know someone who was invited on the most tenuous of connections to Queen Elizabeth II's birthday party. And he was you know, invited into Buckingham Palace, awestruck by the pageantry. It came time for everyone to line up one by one to personally wish Queen Elizabeth a happy birthday. And when it came time for him to stand in front and said, you know, your majesty, happy birthday, she looked at him like, what are you doing here? You do, I don't remember inviting you. This morning, we're going to look at two feasts thrown by two different kings. We'll just call them for the sake of simplicity, feast one and feast two. Feast one is the hottest ticket in town. Everyone wants an invitation to that party. Feast two is the invitation that we all need. It often goes unheeded. Uh, nevertheless, it is uh, the greatest honor in history to be invited to feast two. Not only that, to invite others. Um, they offer contrasting models for our public life as the followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is uh, a way for you to see two different ways to be involved in politics. Um, it also shows two different ways to just simply live your life. Two different ways to process pain. Two different ways uh, to show where your hope's at. So let's look at Feast 1 together in Daniel 5. Now, this feast is uh, one that Daniel did not get invited to. Daniel, for all of his political influence in Babylon, did not get invited to this feast because there was a new king who didn't really know him. Verse 1 says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. So we just need to ask, who's King Belshazzar? King Belshazzar is in the succession of kings behind King Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't biologically Nebuchadnezzar's son, but in terms of the spiritual influence and the political influence, he was like Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual political son. Belshazzar is reigning over an age of decadence in Babylon. He's not as forward-thinking as King Nebuchadnezzar, who is expanding the Babylonian empire and conquering lands. And um, he was more like drafting off of the glories of the past. Nevertheless, he throws a huge party, and he invites the political elite, his lords, and he drinks wine in front of all of them. And then he uh, goes from there to make the party as crazy as possible. Verse 2 says this, 
When he's tasted the wine, Belshazzar commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem that be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might, might drink from them. Verse three, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here we have a bizarre moment. The vessels that had been ransacked from the holy temple of God in Jerusalem, from Belshazzar's father, uh, was now taken out like trophies from a trophy case. Let's bring out all of these really rich goblets that were dedicated to, to the living God, and we will use them in a pagan way to toast the gods of gold and silver and all of the precious metals and useful materials that made Babylon, Babylon wealthy. Now, also, let's bring out the concubines to make it even more of a party. One pastor used a word that describes this feast really well, frenetic, frenetic. Excessive drinking, excessive eating, concubines, a concentration of all of the powerful elites, trophies from the past are brought out, and it even gets religious. It's a pagan religious festival. It's a satisfaction of every human appetite, from the ego to the stomach to entertainment for the soul. It was as crazy as they could make it. Um, why is it so frenetic? There's good reason to believe that they were trying to escape reality, trying to stave off reality. History tells us that one week before this party, the Medes and the Persians won decisive victories over the Babylonian army, Belshazzar's army and that enemy armies were surrounding Babylon, ready to move in, ready to make Belshazzar uh, either a vassal, like, a, like someone who would pay tribute to the Medes and the Persians, or that he would be dead. And so right before this sort of catastrophe of judgment falls on Babylon, they're just doing everything they can to escape reality, which is what Feast One is all about. Feast one is all about forgetting reality, escaping reality, but you do so in a way that invites God's judgment. You're escaping pain, you're denying failure, you're covering it all up, but then God's judgment comes swiftly, and this um, happened to Belshazzar. So uh, God's judgment finds him in the form of a human fingers, a human hand, kind of a freaky Halloween-like situation for Belshazzar. But the human hand writes something that is actually something that no human could have known, which is what God thought of Belshazzar, what God thought of his past, what God thought of his present, and what God had planned for his future. Verse 5 tells us what happened. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So we read later that actually what the hand wrote was four words, mene, mene, um, tekel, parson. Mene, mene, tekel, parson, which 
translated means weighed, weighed, lacking, divided. Weighed, but found to be lacking. And then as a result, the judgment would be division. Medes and Persians would divide the spoils of the great Babylonian empire. Now, no matter how uh, intoxicated Belshazzar was at that moment, this uh, writing of the human hand sobered him up. And in fact, not only sobered him up, but caused him to, to collapse. It says that, verse six, that the king's color changed, that his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So here we have a humiliated king. Here we have a, a, a king who's brought to his knees, brought to the ground, uh, brought to the, really the end of himself. And so he, he brings in Daniel to provide understanding. He doesn't know what to do. His queen mother has to tell him that he has a very capable interpreter. And so he brings in Daniel. He insults him. Um, oh, aren't you one of the, uh, the exiles? <laughs> Maybe you can provide an interpretation. Daniel uh, begins by bringing something up that no one wants to talk about at a great party which is the, the, the history, the spiritual history of Belshazzar. This is the exact kind of thing you don't want to bring. It's very awkward to talk about family history, family secrets, national history, national shame at a time when you want to celebrate. But nevertheless, Daniel tells him, here's, what, here's what's going on. In verse 18, he says, O king, the most high gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. You know, so it wasn't, gold, silver, wood, all those other things. It was the living God who gave Nebuchadnezzar the glory. And verse 20, verse 20 says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and glory was taken from him. This is referencing when, when Nebuchadnezzar sort of lost his mind. We looked at that last week. So he moves from the most recent past to the present. That's the national history but you, Belshazzar, are complicit. It's not just your father, the king, that sinned. You have sinned. In verse 22, he says, you have not humbled your heart. Verse 23, he says, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And later he says, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold. And then at the end of verse 23, he says, um, the God in whose hand is your breath and who are, whose are all your ways you have not honored. It's not just me who has the spirit of God. Belshazzar, you have the spirit of God, but you totally you know, denied it and pushed it down and tried to forget it. So the judgment is national. The judgment is personal. Babylon and Belshazzar are complicit and humiliated at the moment when they were trying to exalt themselves. The glittering party became an embarrassing scandal. This reminds me of the awkward roast that Ricky Gervais gave to the Academy Awards this past January. He decided in advance when he knew that he would be hosting, he said, he decided that he would um, uh, not pander to the 200 egos in the room, all the titans of industry and entertainment and politics, that he would actually crash the party by poking fun at all the things they wanted to hide, all the double standards around injustice, 
all of the dirty secrets of Hollywood, as well as the broken personal lives of those in attendance. Right? This is a Ricky Gervais moment for Belshazzar. He's trying to exalt himself, and Daniel's bringing up all of the things he doesn't want to think about, all the things he doesn't want to talk about. And there's always just that hangover. There's always that moment of where feast one is crashed by God's judgment and shaken by God's judgment. We all have things we want to forget. Uh, all of our personal sin and trauma, our failures and wrongdoings, all broken relationships and longstanding resentments, our own family history, our own personal history, our eventual death. Who wants to bring that up at a party? That's why we bring out the alcohol. That's why we bring out things that help us forget. That's why we invite our impressive friends. We don't have to think about failure. Feast One promises escape from all of these things, a way to deny them. It's like a baptism in pleasure, a baptism in ego, a time to take out all the trophies and hide inferiorities. And it can be as small as a party of one or as big as a multitude on the streets. Feast One seeks to get joy, but gets judgment instead. You know, in the church, Feast One can look very pious and godly. We can use the name of Jesus and even spiritual practices to push happiness at all costs. We don't, we don't have to grieve. We don't have to think about unpleasant realities. We only feature spiritual success stories. Feast One in the church can also pass itself off as spiritual freedom. Hey, we're not legalistic here. Um, and so followers of Jesus end up indulging their appetites as a way of protesting legalism. In either case, Feast One is all about escaping reality and pushing it down, and it doesn't work. Didn't work for Belshazzar. Verse 30 says that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And like God's justice caught up with him. And I think there's this sense in 2020 that like God's judgment is catching up with all of us. That feast one isn't working as much as we try to, to, to deny reality, suppress reality. That it's almost like speeding it up. Judgment over dependence on substances. Judgment for racism and chronic injustice. Judgment for the way that we've treated the poor, the way that women have been exploited, that children have been abused. Lots of judgment in 2020 in the form of pandemic and protests and wildfires and exposés and rising addiction levels. It's like, how are we going to, what's the answer for all of this judgment? And that's, it's just like the writing is on the wall. The enemy's at the gate. Justice is coming soon. And that's why we need Feast 2. Because Feast 1 doesn't work. Feast 2 is also hosted by a king who is about to die. The army is just outside the walls, ready to brutalize his body. The enemy is inside the walls, within the intimate circle of his friends. You don't see this king trying to escape reality and avoid judgment and deny pain. Quite the opposite, he names it openly. He accepts it. Yet, this king uses his feast to accept reality in a way that extends God's mercy. 
extend God's relief, extend God's great grace. In our gospel reading, Matthew 26, we see Jesus celebrating Passover with his spiritual family. It's an intimate family gathering of uh, his closest associates that he's given everything to. And in the final meal, he makes things as awkward as you can ever imagine. Have you ever been at a family dinner and someone brings up the elephant in the room and it's awkward for the rest of the dinner? This is what happens. I mean, like Jesus brings up something that everyone, like it's really uncomfortable. Uh, It says in verse 20 of Matthew 26, while it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, like I'm telling the truth here, one of you will betray me. Doesn't hide from it. Brings it up to the surface and they were all very sorrowful, it says. Uh, And he began to say, and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? You can just even imagine like the circle, like one at a time. Like one person goes and the person next to them is like, well, I better go. Is it me? No. Is it me? No. What about me, Lord? Is it, am I gonna betray you? No. It's the one who dips his, uh, dips uh, with me, his bread. And Judah says, is it me? Yeah. Yeah, it's you, Judas. Um, I think Jesus wants to know that he loves Judas, that he knows what Judas is planning, that he has grace for him. If, If Judas could accept it, Judas doesn't end up accepting it. It's why he brought up soon after with Peter, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. But then afterwards, there's forgiveness. Why does Jesus make things awkward at feast too? Well, because the whole point is to put his forgiving heart on display. The whole point of feast two is he's accepting his death. He's giving his death. He's not denying it. The whole point of feast two is to show that he's willing to be betrayed, willing to be denied, and willing to be broken. To forgive the sins of everyone seated at the table with him. Verse 26 says this, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and uh, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my body. This is my blood. It's for you. It's for your betrayal and your denial and your sin, they would all run from him. They would all abandon him. His body was broken for that. His body was broken for my sins, your sins, poured out for the forgiveness for many people to be forgiven of sin. There's always mercy at feast too. That's why you don't have to hide. It can be sorrowful and awkward and truthful and hard because there's mercy and forgiveness and grace and space for us to transform our pain, for Jesus to transform our pain and turn it into life and healing. Um, So whenever we eat and drink of the body and blood of our Lord, whenever we take of this holy meal, we live that memory 
We live the memory of this. We live inside the memory in a way that transforms us. Michael Card sings about this in his song, Come to the Table. He captures the relief of Feast 2. Uh, the song goes like this, come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken and know that you are welcome, whatever your crime, for every commandment you've broken. For he's come to love you and not to condemn. And he offers a pardon of peace. If you'll come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. So come to the table, he's prepared for you. The bread of forgiveness, the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior wants you to join in the feast. You know, one of the best depictions of Feast 2 on film is called Babette's Feast. And it tells the story of a French-trained chef named Babette, who is um, a local house, household servant slash chef for two sisters in a strict Danish household situated in a strict Danish setting. And there's old memories of their, of their very strict religious dad who has since died. There's uh, divisions since, uh, since he passed away. There's like a church split that happened in this village. The sisters themselves never were married, but they had like potential suitors that came along and it didn't work out and that was hard. And so like, it's a very lifeless place. And one day, Babette, their chef, wins the French lottery. She had this lottery ticket that was renewed every year and she wins 10,000 francs. It was her chance to escape the spiritual stranglehold of that place and go pursue her dream of being an artist. But then something happens, which is that she decides instead of escaping, she decides that she will spend every last franc on one meal and she will purchase the, the best food. She will import some of the best food that money can buy. And she will use all of her chef training to her culinary arts to, to make this meal. The catch is that she doesn't just make the meal for the sisters. She makes it for their former suitors and the other people in the town that they're estranged from. And to the sisters' surprise, they will all show up. And they will sit around the table and they'll taste of the sumptuousness of the meal. And over the course of the meal, what you see is that there's something happens that's like in between, in between the lines, what happens is that over the meals, there's a spiritual life that floods into this place and old divisions melt and old resentments give way to reconciliation. And the sisters are changed and the town has changed. And Babette, having done her work, uh, moves on. She's, 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 given the, she's given the town what she came there to give. And this is a picture of our Lord Jesus. That he had all spiritual wealth and he spent it on a meal. And he gave us the meal through his death on the cross. So that everything we'd want to forget in feast one can be brought up in feast two. So there can be healing and reconciliation, renewal and life. So we come to the table here. We taste of the sorrow. We taste of the forgiveness and grace. As often as we, we do it, we do so in remembrance of him, remembrance of feast too. There's an invitation for each one of us. Maybe you've never said yes to this invitation. 
saying yes begins by saying, Lord, there's a lot of things that I don't want brought up. And nevertheless, I come to the table trusting that you can have mercy for it. And he will forgive you and he will save you and he will pour grace upon you. And coming to the table, being baptized, and then coming to the table is a way of, of, of just taking your place at, the, at feast too. Now that's right now not what it used to be, is it? We used to have the most joyful Eucharistic feasts as a church. For those of you who were part of Emmanuel before COVID, and uh, the, little, the little cups aren't the same as the nice tasty loaf, is it? I mean, the, like the wafer doesn't really taste very good. And it's awkward and it's not as, it doesn't feel as good. Nevertheless, the Lord is still here. His Holy Spirit is still here. His death is still for you. And so we come to the table as often as we can. And if we, for various reasons, um, choose not to or cannot come to the local gathering, well, there's ways to receive the body and blood through picking it up at the ministry center. And that's awkward too. And nevertheless, we come as often as we can because the King has invited us. And he's invited us because he loves us and he cares about us and he wants to forgive our sins, he wants to relieve our traumas and he wants to bring renewal and hope wherever there's judgment and heaviness as there has been so much in the year 2020. One of the greatest political honors of the people of God is to not only accept the invitation to feast too, but extend the invitation to feast too. And not just on Sundays, but anytime we have a chance to be with someone, invite them in, even if it's awkward and we have to do a temperature check and have an outdoor heater in the backyard or whatever space we have, even if it's over Zoom or over a phone call, to bring the relief of Feast 2 into the lives of those who are struggling and guilty and uh, afraid for our world. And to see Jesus bring relief and hope and joy. You know, I love how Jesus ends this text. Uh, he ends this meal by saying, like, I'm not going to eat of this again until I taste it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. That there's a crescendo coming that we're not just remembering. We're also looking forward. There's a coming feast. Feast 2 doesn't end so pathetically like Feast 1 does. It ends in triumph. It ends with joy. Jesus will one day return to earth and this table will be as long as you can imagine. And we will, we will uh, drink to the king, not to forget, but to remember all he's done. There's hope in feast two. There's hope that all that we are afraid will break us in the end can actually be forgiven. And it is my prayer that as God's people, living in an era where feast once doesn't work anymore, that we will come to the table, taste of the glory, taste of the sorrow, and extend, set a table for all of those in our life who are also invited. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.